challenging. Like, you know, I guess I can sit here uh, working for an agency whose whose jurisdiction is is singular. You know, I, I don't have to deal with the other things. But, you know, as an incident commander, when we go to other jurisdictions, we do have to deal with all the competing land management objectives and and land users. Um, but you know, if you keep putting the fires out, eventually the fires that do happen become the mega ones. And, and those are just so much more challenging to deal with. And we've seen that in the last few years. Um, it's, it's super stressful on the responders. It's stressful on the communities. Uh, Recovery is difficult. And um, I think the more people see that when you do modified response or prescribed fire, you know, we can, we can manage fires within those parameters. We know how to manage them on the fringes um in in those kind of moderate times and then it's not this like extreme fire that you're just like hoping for a lot of weather to to help you out so um i think that's a pretty key thing as we move forward hey everybody and welcome to life with fire podcast the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it moving forward i'm your host amanda montai And we've got a really great episode for you today. I'm really excited to share this. It's the second episode in our Women in Wildfire series, and it's also our first episode with a Canadian guest. And that is very exciting to me. It's something I've wanted to do since I started the show. And we brought on Jane Park, who is the Fire and Vegetation Management Specialist for Parks Canada in Banff National Park. And this is the first episode with Jane. We'll do another episode next week with her. This one focuses primarily on her job with Banff National Park and the sort of fire regime in that area and her work with some prescribed fire initiatives. And then next week, we'll talk more about um, some diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives she has going on and bringing WTREX to Canada and all sorts of other great topics. So I split it up kind of into the fire ecology realm and then into the more diversity realm. A bit more about Jane. Uh, She is a Korean-Canadian woman. Uh, She's a Type 1 incident commander. She's gone to Australia to work on wildfire management teams. She is kind of just an all-around, like, preeminent voice in the prescribed fire and wildfire management space. And I've followed her for a long time, and I've wanted to talk to her for a long time, and really happy that we finally made this conversation happen. Before we start our conversation with Jane, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Mystery Ranch, who came on as a sponsor recently. Um, they supported the show early on, and then they've recently re-sponsored the show, and I can't thank them enough for their support. Mystery Ranch packs are kind of near and dear to my heart because when I worked in fire, I was like basically attached to a Mystery Ranch fire pack for four years. I probably spent more time with that pack than most of my friends and family for those four years, and... When you're spending that much time with your gear, you get pretty emotionally attached to it. So I feel like I have used and abused Mystery Ranch packs. I also use their Saddle Peak uh, Backcountry Ski Pack. I've had that for four years now, and I've used it for everything from skiing to bike trips to I think I've used it when I've gone up to do some cutting work in the woods, some trail work. Basically, it's a pretty bomber pack. I've had it covered in bar oil and wood chips and I've used it on uh, long backcountry ski tours and would highly recommend that pack for anybody who is looking for sort of a day pack for pretty much any adventure that you can get yourself into but especially for backcountry skiing. 
Of course, they have tons of other options. They have backpacking packs. They have hunting packs. They have briefcases. Pretty much whatever pack you need, whatever pack your heart desires, they probably have something to that effect. And their fire packs are second to none, absolutely the best that you can get in the industry. So if you're looking for a pack for almost anything, check out Mystery Ranch. And you can find a link to their website in this episode's show notes. All right, awesome. Well, let's get into our episode with Jane. This is episode number one, and this is a part of our Women in Wildfire series that's going to run through about May, and we'll have another episode with Jane coming out probably later next week. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, yeah, my name is Jane Park, and I'm the Fire and Vegetation Specialist here in Banff National Park, working for Parks Canada. Um, and yeah, I came into fire in a more roundabout way, I guess I didn't come off of a crew. I started working for Parks Canada about 20 years ago. I was a park warden and I had gone to grad school for forest ecology and always just really liked being outside in the bush. And so I um, applied for that job. And I think because of my background in forest ecology, I kind of quickly got put into the fire stream of things. And uh, so within the first year I was there, I was helping with prescribed fire and, and BAMP's a big prescribed fire park. And so kind of immediately caught the old fire bug. Um, and did that for a bit as a park warden. And then um, being a park warden allowed me to kind of roam around uh, Canada. So I had the fortune of going up to uh, Vuntut National Park, which is uh, up in northern Yukon territory in Canada, working there for a couple of years and then going over to um, Haida Gwaii, which is uh, on the west coast of Canada for just under a year and then making my way back to the mountains. So have had kind of a bit of a Western tour of uh, various territories and, and, and lands and working with indigenous people um, up in Vuntad and in Haida Gwaii that have been, yeah, just amazing experiences. I and really want to know about Haida Gwaii. <laughs> what was that all about? That sounds amazing. Yeah. So that was like not really fire related. That was back in my park warden days. And so Haida Gwaii, is a national park reserve that's uh, co-managed with the Haida Nation. And so, um, yeah, we were doing conservation work there and patrolling um, the park and that sort of thing. I wasn't there for too long, just one season, but it's an amazing place, just uh, crawling with life and and, uh, learning about the Haida culture and meeting uh, the Haida people and getting to work with them was just amazing. And similar with up in the Arctic, uh, just having the opportunity to to live with the people whose land you're working on um, up there. It's the Vantek Wichin and you're up above the Arctic Circle and and seeing the way, their way of life. And, you know, they're only a generation or two off of the land and still very much traditional lifestyle. And so learning all about the culture and, and um, kind of working towards, you know, that kind of stewardship together is, is kind of what it, what's brought me into the way that I like to manage fire. I'm trying to manage fire here in Banff. I guess I never really got back to my return to Banff after all of that, um, which was about uh, 10 years ago. I came back and and got into this role here as the uh, fire veg specialist. So that means I kind of manage the fire side of things. So lots of prescribed fire, wildfire response, um, research, monitoring. And then I also have like the vegetation side of our, our program, which is, you know, looking at native plants and, and uh, invasive species and things like that too. Oh, cool. You guys have a pretty like robust prescribed fire program in Banff, from what I understand. We do. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, it started uh, my predecessor, Ian Pengelly, um, him and a few others started doing prescribed fires in the early 80s. Um, you know, it was after just like everywhere in the North, in North America, there's tons of fire suppression. Um, it was really kind of a change of mindset. Um, our fire regime here in Banff is really based on indigenous burning. So there's uh, lots of history of indigenous burning here, but like in many places, uh, once the settlers came in, the establishment of the park kind of extirpated the indigenous people from the land as well as their cultural burning practices. Um, so fire basically was excluded. And so, you know, in the early 60s, 70s, um, people were starting to realize like, oh, fire might actually not be a bad thing. You know, things grow and the ecosystem seems to depend on it. Um, so in the 80s, uh, that's when they started doing small prescribed fires. Um, they really started to do stand replacing fires, like we're in the, the montane and the subalpine um, parts of the Rockies. And so um, bigger landscape level fires. Um, and I've really been able to kind of build on that since I've taken over the program because now we're going back to the places that they burnt in the early 80s and 90s and we're reburning them. And, and now we're actually getting back to the, the fire regime that it would have been because, you know, you burn things once and it comes back lodgepole pine and it'll be a dense forest. You burn it again and it'll go back to, um, you know, more of the grassland and the open forest types that would have been kind of in the lower valley bottoms. Mm -hmm. in the past so and then like i said before we our park is pretty known for doing prescribed fire a lot of it comes from the fact that our fire regime is heavily um, based on anthropogenic burning so the cultural burning practices of the indigenous people who were here before um so banff is located on the the traditional territories of the treaty six seven eight um first nations as well as the metis nation of alberta and um, you know, like a lot of First Nations around North America, um, the indigenous people here that were here before the park um, burned for many different purposes, you know, creating um, travel corridors for um, uh, prey animals, for um, all sorts of medicinal plants and that sort of thing. And so um, without cultural burning, same thing as everywhere else. It's all kind of grown in really dense lodgepole pine in the last hundred years. And that's replaced um, the open forest types and vegetation like Douglas for grasslands and Aspen grasslands um, that are super important for the wildlife around here. So, um, you know, our, our ecosystem is quite similar to say Yellowstone, um, all those kinds of, uh, you know, Eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountain places with elk and grizzly bears and wolves. Um, and so our prescribed fire program, the first iteration with from my predecessor, you know, that took the standing dense forest and made it, you know, kind of the standing burnt forest. And if we were to just leave that, it would come back dense lodgepole pine. Um, but we know from historic photographs and um, other studies that uh, the the valley bottoms where all the animals are, where the most important habitat is, would have been this like diverse mosaic of open grasslands. And we've got, you know, beautiful fescue grasslands here as well. And so we need to burn those places more than once because you burn it once, you get the standing sticks, you burn it twice, sticks fall down. It's still pretty hard for animals to move around when you have the pickup sticks. So by the second and third time, as long as you go back before those lodgepole pine go to cone, then you'll actually get start getting grasslands. And so, um, 
you know, if you come here in the fall, um, you know, I can show you places to go where you can see that we've burnt, you know, three times and, you know, on one side of the road, you can see what it would have looked like before we burnt, which is just chock-a-block trees. And then on the other side, it's this like beautiful kind of, you can see like old snags, but you can also see like all the grass and the forbs and the, the native plants coming back um, and the, the old mature Douglas fir. And so, yeah, like I've kind of feel fortunate that like I get, you know, the, the kind of empty coloring book from my predecessor to like paint inside the lines and, and reapply prescribed fire to kind of get it back to the next stage. Um, you know, we're still doing other fires that are um, the first round. So for doing stand replacing um, fire, crown fire, um, we're not just doing low intensity fire. We usually do mixed severity. So you, you, we are doing um, crown fires. Um, we do big burns. Um, some of our, some of the burns we have planned are, you know, upwards of, you know, 6,000 hectares hectare so not acres I, I don't you have to do the math to do the conversion yeah. um, and um and they're not necessarily all easy you know like uh in 2003 um ian who had my job before uh he put in like a, a very large landscape level burn right along the trans canada highway which is like the the transportation route across canada um, between the town of Canmore and the town of Banff, um, that prescribed fire was about 4,500 hectares. And, you know, it provides a great fuel break for the town of Canmore um, in terms of wildfire that's coming down the valley. And, and we are planning to burn that again in the near future. So, um, you know, it's a pretty cool uh, program in that, you know, we're doing everything from really small, you know, 10 to 30 hectare grass burns to, you know, very large sand replacing burns or mixed severity burns. Um, and we, we do um, a lot of uh, modified response fire as well in Parks Canada. Um, basically our mandate is to allow fire to play its natural role as, in as many places as we can. Um, we're fortunate that this is our own land base. So we have a zoning system where, you know, we do still suppress fires where all of our infrastructure is, where the public mostly is, where communities are. Um, but as you move further away and, and where there aren't as many values um, and we can allow fire to play its role, we, we do. And so um, that's great. And, and it allows us to kind of have that um, kind of more rounded picture of fire management. Um, and not to say that we, we don't do things like, you know, large fuel breaks. And, you know, we have had uh, fairly large logging projects within the park in places where we can't do prescribed fire. So we try to use like all of the tools in the toolbox. And I think, you know, with the impacts of climate change that are coming and already happening, um, I think like I strongly believe that, you know, you do need to use all the tools. Like if you're not using landscape prescribed fire, along with fuel management, with fire smart, um, with modified response, you know, we're going to be behind the eight ball. And like, I don't think this, um, like, this is the time not to double down on, on wildfire suppression. That's for sure. Absolutely. Tell that to a couple of senators in the U.S. <laughs> I have been following a bit of the news down there for sure. And, and really kind of hoping that it stays south of the border but I I, mm -hmm. I think that the good thing is that like the science fire science community and the managers are kind of all on the same page mm -hmm. um and you know hopefully science and logic and things like that will 
will prevail uh, somehow. But, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely, I think it's always easy to fall back on what we know and what we know is suppression, but what we also know is the impacts of all that suppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't, I don't think that that's the way to go. And, and it's challenging. Like, you know, I guess I can sit here uh, working for an agency whose, whose jurisdiction is, is singular. You know, I, I don't have to deal with the other things, but you know, as an incident commander, when we go to other jurisdictions, we do have to deal with all the competing land management objectives and and land users. Um, but you know, if you keep putting the fires out, eventually the fires that do happen become the mega ones, and and those are just so much more challenging to deal with. And we've seen that in the last few years. Um, it's it's super stressful on the responders. It's stressful on the communities. Uh, recovery is difficult. And um, I think the more people see that when you do modified response or prescribed fire, you know, we can, we can manage fires within those parameters. We know how to manage them on the fringes um, in, in those kind of moderate times. And then it's not this like extreme fire that you're just like hoping for a lot of weather to, to help you out. So um, I think that's a pretty key thing as we move forward. Yeah. That's fascinating, especially I actually haven't thought about how difficult it must be as an IC, especially, well, in the States, of course, I guess I have thought about it, but in your perspective, like how are those management objectives sort of reflected as an IC, especially when you are in areas where you have so many different different jurisdictions and management objectives? Does that make sense? Like yeah. how, does, how does that dynamic play out? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, part of it is like, when you get deployed to other agencies, you know, you are there to work for that agency. And, um, you know, what they say, tell you in all the ICS training is like, you know, we get as incident commanders our our marching orders and what, what our delegated authorities are, what the priorities are. And, and I think it's a matter of kind of really understanding like what that agency's priorities are and just trying to triage, you know, for the best you can. And obviously, um, in a lot of the fires we've been to lately, like when you, like every fire, the, the safety of the public and your responders is number one. And so, you know, it's almost becomes easier when the fire is as extreme as it has been, because, you know, that is your primary focus, really. Um, you, you know, you're not at that point trying to balance all these other priorities. It's kind of when you're just slightly below that and you have enough breathing room to like think about like, okay, you know, the people are safe, the community is safe. Now I've got, you know, timber and uh, I've been to tra- ones where there's trappers and there's uh, communities and there's recreational values. It's like when you kind of get into those situations where it becomes really like this um, balancing act to make sure that you are trying to capture those values. But, you know, in the really extreme events, I mean, it's a singular focus of just trying to mm-hmm. protect as many people's livelihoods and people as you can and keep your responders safe. And I think that's what's going to become more challenging with with climate change. Definitely. I did want to circle back on what you were mentioning earlier with these landscape level burns that you guys are able to do and that you're not necessarily seeking low severity fire, like you're actually seeking these stand replacing fires. This is actually quite contrary to like what I normally perceive and therefore what I think my audience also normally perceives as being like what prescribed fire is. Mm-hmm. I feel like I generally assume prescribed fire is low to moderate severity and I make that assumption quite often. <laughs> and it's kind of cool to hear that 
yeah, replacing like stand replacing fires can have ecological benefit. Obviously, if the fire regime or if like the the you know the ecosystem calls for it. Um, yeah, I don't know how you can maybe comment on that, but just I simply wanted to acknowledge that it was that was like very contrary contrary <laughs> to my previous understanding of like what prescribed fire looks like and yeah. what it can look like in different ecosystems. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is like. Um, in ecosystems where the fire regime is like frequent, low to moderate intensity fire, it's it's a lot easier even like politically, logistically to implement prescribed fire. So in those places and like a lot of places in the southern states, um, you know, prescribed fire is like second nature to like everybody, whether it's a landowner or a private citizen, whatever, everybody's doing it. Um, when you get into the the types of fire regimes that we have, you know, in the, in Western North America and lots of places in Canada where the fire regime is stand replacing and or it should have been low intent, low to moderate intensity, but we've created this fuel bed that's like kind of not what we're used to, um, like these dense carpets of lodgepole pine. You know, there's a couple ways to get back to that open Douglas for grassland. You can log it and then run a prescribed fire through it. That that could probably stay low to moderate intensity. Um, but then you also kind of lose some of the ecological benefits of fire. And like, you know, in, in every fire regime, there's a range of natural variability. Like there'll be some low to moderate intensity fires, some high intensity fires. And um, what we're trying to do up here is use those landscape level fires to to replicate what would have happened in the past. So if a if an area escaped fire for the last hundred years, you know, a fire would have been the thing that replaced it. And so, you know, we tend not to burn um, our prescribed fires right in the middle of summer, because obviously we know that, you know, that will have lasting effects on soil and, and you know, the regeneration. So we are kind of targeting those stand replacing fires, you know, in, in the late summer where we know that there's an incoming precipitation event coming so that, you know, we still get the overstory killed, but it's not smoldering. It's not going to burn all the deep organics. It's probably going to, you know, a couple of times you've had it where it snows basically the next day because we've planned, we've seen in the weather that it's super nice. Now there's rain or snow. Okay, go burn. Snow and rain puts it out. We don't have to worry about it like nuking the landscape. Um, and so I think like part of that is a bit of the art of prescribed fire. Um, but it's definitely not what most people are doing in terms of fire. And I think like for me, that's kind of the draw to this job um, is, is having been there for some of those initial fires that Ian, Ian lit like 20 years ago, being able to see that that's possible. And then now 20 years later, seeing the ecological effects, being like, oh, yeah, OK, like you did that crown fire. And wow, like there's a grizzly bear that lives in that 4,000 hectares that basically never leaves that the, the footprint of that burn. Or there's a wolf pack that basically never crosses the highway because there's such good, you know, hunting on that side of the, the, the highway. Like it's, um, yeah, I think like it'll be interesting to see how many people that live in these types of um, fire regimes like see that as a tool. I mean, I think it's hard because, you know, all over North America, any place where that might be the fire regime, timber values are really significant. And so, you know, the thought of burning standing timbers, like burning 
value. So I think that's probably also why you don't see that as much. And you see a lot of people doing like logging treatments and then uh, fire treatments after, because then they can take the value off the land first. Um, for us, because our primary mandate is ecological integrity, um, we can look at it more as a, a natural process. And, you know, like fire, if it burnt, it wouldn't have come in and burnt slash, it would have burnt standing trees. So how do we replicate that? So I think like, that's why I always think like, I kind of, I think I'm stuck in this job till I retire because there's just not a lot of places that do it the way we do. So I'm pretty, I feel pretty fortunate. That is fantastic. We covered so many topics. I feel like that was like prescribed fire 101. Like that was like a conversation I needed. I've needed to have on this podcast for a long time. Like I've talked about prescribed fire. I've talked about the challenges about all this, but like yeah. the actual ecological benefit and like how it's done and what, you know, just that was, that was really awesome. And to like yeah. also have the diversity conversation and the being a woman in fire conversation. And I think I'm going to have to split this up into two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That what was just too good. Just too yeah. good. <laughs> but I think like, you're right. Like, and that, I think that's what frustrates me sometimes is like, I see all these, like, you know, they're beautiful fires, you know, when you look at the like low, moderate intensity fires, or I like love grass fires. Um, it's so great, but like, that's not the only kind of fire that ever happened on the landscape. And if we only do those kind of fires, then we're eventually going to get the big whoppers too. So I think like it's, it's again, like what's natural in your ecosystem. You know, we have like Wood Buffalo National Park. If you Google that, it's like bigger than Switzerland, basically, I think. And it's, it's fully boreal. So whenever we go up there to manage fire, it's modified response almost a hundred percent of the time, unless it's near one of the communities. And you know, we just get to observe amazing boreal fires. Um, that fire regime's changing too, but like, you know, if if for some reason they ever had to go to prescribed fire, it would be, you know, full stand replacing, you know, black spruce boreal fire, which is something that everybody should see once in their life, at least, I think. I was on a fire in high level Alberta once. Oh, there you go. That's right below. <laughs> I saw it. Below. Totally. Yeah, that's right there. 100%. The black spruce getting flown in and flown off of every, yeah. like every day we got flown in and flown off that fire. It was so Lots wild. Feet. Soggy, soggy feet. <laughs> yeah. Trench foot. Yeah. I was like, how is it burning? I am so wet. <laughs> It's yeah. So muddy. It's, yeah. It's like, yeah. Like when people say like wet shit don't burn, but it's like, yeah, no, sometimes it burns forever. You've never been to Northern Alberta. I'll yeah, tell exactly. you what. You haven't ever tried to put out a muskeg fire. <laughs> that was a wildfire. We were, it was so bizarre. Just, you know, yeah. Just standing in puddles, but like digging line. Yeah. <laughs> hey folks. This is Amanda just coming in real quick to remind you to donate to the Life with Fire Patreon if you're interested in supporting us financially. We have a couple different tiers all the way from $3 a month to $30 a month and we will send you a Mystery Ranch swag pack if you donate at the $15 level or up and also a Life with Fire calendar if you donate at the $20 level and up. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, that's a great way to do it and we'd also love it if you could Maybe share the podcast or subscribe on Apple or Spotify or leave us a review, maybe on Apple especially. Um, those reviews really help the algorithm and really help get the podcast in front of other folks who might be interested in it. So any level of support would be super appreciated and will help us 
not only continue to produce and edit and research and find great guests for you all to listen to, um, but we'll also support some big initiatives we have moving forward. Maybe taking Life with Fire on the road this summer. That would be pretty cool, but any and all levels of support are appreciated and will help us to continue to make this podcast for you guys and find awesome guests and continue putting out content that educates uh, the West and beyond about wildfire. So thank you for all the support so far, and let's get back into it with Jane. I know that I think in some of the declared wilderness, like they can't even do prescribed fire. Yeah. It's like too man-made. They're overprotecting. Like, yeah, like it's that's mm-hmm. too much. Like you, you need to come back over this way a little bit. So yeah, yeah it's definitely, it's interesting, but. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it'll be interesting as like we see those wilderness areas get nuked out. Yeah, inevitably. And that's probably going to happen. Like, yeah. And that's like the other frustrating part is when you talk to people and it's like trees grow and there's a thing called succession. And like, and like you know, our timescales aren't <laughs> just like 10, 15 years. Like, yeah, yeah, like we might forget things because we're humans, but like, <laughs> like these things are helping our children. And like, yeah. I know we can't think in that long of timescales, but we yeah. should learn how to. <laughs> totally. Well, and like, even like, you know, oh, well, we have to protect like these patches of old growth. And it's like, they're not going to stay alive forever. Like, if a fire doesn't wipe them out, an insect's going to like, something's mm-hmm. going to wipe them out. Mm-hmm. So like, you need to create more new stuff to be eventually become the old stuff. You can't mm-hmm. just like, isolate these like, little pockets. That's not the way it works. Totally. Yeah. Overprotection is an interesting concept that I've only recently sort of started diving into, like that that's like a thing. And especially with riparian areas and uh, with old growth, I've heard that there's actually not that much diversity in old growth forests. Like yeah. that there's, it's much more ecologically diverse in a recently burned area. Yeah. Like in our neck, neck of the woods, hundred percent. So our most important eco, eco region is the montane. Um, it makes up only like 2% of the actual land cover that we've got in the park, but it's the most important for habitat. Um, you know, the old growth, definitely like those types of like fire refugia are like super important to like certain animals, you know, caribou and um, other, you know, cavity nesting things and things like that. But again, like if you, and I think that's also where like in parks, like we tend not to like burn for one reason. We, also always have multiple objectives because if we're always just going to save this for that animal, then all the rest of them suffer. So we kind of try to have that balance. Like we're going to try to save some old growth, but we're going to put some prescribed fire in there because if we don't, the next time it burns, it's going to wipe out all the old growth, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And I think that's the whole thing. It's like, then that's where like your question about like balancing stuff, that's where it starts to get hard when you're like balancing, you know, endangered species and old growth and, montane habitat and things that need new growth and grass and you're trying to balance all those things it tends to get really hard you know like and it's getting harder you know the the more there's rare things rare plants endangered species you know trying to protect over here but you need to burn over there like it's Mm -hmm. it's not easy all right that's our first episode with jane park hate to leave you guys hanging but we do have another episode with her next week where she'll talk more about some of the diversity initiatives that she has going on and about being a korean canadian woman working as an ic and working in fire and kind of the dynamic of that and some of her experiences in being a woman in fire and especially being a woman in a very high up management position in fire so want to thank jane for coming on the show and having a super fun conversation with me i had a total blast talking with her and hearing a bit more about her background. And I hope you guys enjoyed that as well. 
And stay tuned, like I said, for next week's episode. We will promote it and let you guys know when it goes live. But for now, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.